This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Um, When I was around 12 years old, I was diagnosed with a medical condition called orthostatic hypotension. Um, So orthostatic means when I'm still hypotension, I have low blood pressure. And so um, what would happen when I was, this is, I think I was about 12 when when I first got diagnosed, I'd stand up, if I stood up quickly, I'd get lightheaded and faint. And um, I've had symptoms since then. I'll stand up and get lightheaded. Sometimes I faint. And then about two weeks ago, um, I was like, I fainted. And it was getting really lightheaded. And a few friends who are nurses and Mary Clark told me to go to the doctor for a checkup. So I went to the doctor. Um, I've got an excellent primary care physician. And rather than trusting me on what I thought was wrong with me, I went in and said, hey, I know what's wrong with me. I've got this condition. Um, she, rather than trusting me uh, in my diagnosis, she had an EKG done on me. And that's when they hook your body up to like electrodes things and they measure the electricity in your heart. Um, and she refused to listen to me uh, when I said, I'm just fine. It's just low blood pressure. She saw that my diagnosis was too shallow. So then after the EKG, she actually uh, scheduled an appointment for me with a uh, card or told me to schedule an appointment with a cardiologist. And so I've got a friend who's a cardiologist called him and he said, don't worry. Um, not to worry. You don't need a pacemaker. Um, but he sent me this fancy heart rate monitor that I'm actually wearing. It's kind of like a, um, ooh, look at that. So I kind of feel, <laughs> um, I kind of feel like Tony Stark, this thing that's attached to my chest, except it's not keeping me, it's not keeping the shrapnel from getting in. Um, but so I, basically I have to wear this, this heart rate monitor for two weeks and push it whenever I get lightheaded. It records, a, like I push a button on it. This is all new to me. Um, and just drink lots of water and electrolytes, and I'm, I'll be fine. But the reason I share the story, one, don't worry. That's, that's the one thing I say. But the reason I share the story is that I had this problem. I thought I knew what was wrong with me for 25 years. I was confident. This is what I have. This is why I will stand up and wake up on the floor um, five feet away. Like, I, I know why I stand up and I pass out. I, I have this problem. And then my diagnosis was too shallow. Um, it was too shallow. And um, it required a more thorough diagnosis. And as we look at Mark's gospel tonight, we're going to see that Jesus, he says the same thing to us. As we try to diagnose what's wrong with us, Jesus is saying to us, your diagnosis is too shallow, your need is deeper than you think, and the remedy is more costly than you can imagine. And if you're taking notes, that's my outline tonight. Your diagnosis is too shallow. Your need is deeper than you think, and the remedy is more costly than you can imagine. So I'm going to read for us tonight. This is from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, 
Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage begins with Jesus returning to Capernaum, which is now his home. And a large crowd has gathered in his house. They've heard that he's returned. And so they've gathered into his house to hear him preach. And while he's preaching, this group of men bring one of their friends to Jesus. And they're bringing their friend to Jesus with the hope that Jesus is going to heal them. And they get to this small house and see that it's jam-packed with people, that there's no way to get their buddy in the door to Jesus. And um, in Palestine during this time, the first century, houses were normally like one story with a flat roof. It was a one-room probably about 18 feet by 18 feet. Um, The roofs were constructed, so it'd be these walls, and then there'd be beams across the roof, and then uh, they'd lay uh, lay across the walls of the house, and then between the beams, there were sticks and reeds, and then there was um, woven thatch, and then on top of that, they'd pack down mud. Um, very, very sturdy, several inches of mud on top. So it's a sturdy roof and the roof, then they'd build stairs on the side of their house and their roof was kind of like their back deck. Like that's where they'd have their meals. That's where they entertain friends. The roof was this, um, this deck for their, for their homes. So when I read this story, every time I read the story, I'm amazed at just how determined these men are to get their friend before Jesus. Um, they get together and they carry him to where they hear that Jesus is. And when they get there, they don't let the crowds defeat them. Um, and they don't let the roof be an obstacle. They tear the roof, o- tear the roof open, which would have been easy to repair. Um, but they tear the roof open, interrupt his teaching just to get their friend down in front of Jesus. I wonder what was going through their minds. Like what their conversation was like as they were um, getting their friend there. They're so determined. Like maybe they're thinking, like if, together, saying, if only we can get our friend in front of Jesus, then, then his body can be healed. See, up until this point in Mark's gospel, what we've seen is Jesus has really just done two things. He has taught with authority, and he's healed people. And so when these four hear that Jesus is preaching, they bring their friend to be healed. And I find these four friends incredibly beautiful. Because they together loved their friend enough to do this awkward, creative, difficult work of getting their friend in front of Jesus. These four friends are a beautiful example for us of how we can serve the people we love. And even in their service to this paralyzed man, these friends, when they break through the roof, they lower him down before Jesus, they learn that their diagnosis was too shallow. They learned their diagnosis was too shallow. So they lower their friend and Jesus sees something in, this, in the men and in their friend. The one thing that Jesus is always looking for, he sees faith. And immediately Jesus responds and said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's a couple details here that shows just how remarkable this is. First, 
Jesus speaks to this man with exceptional concern and tenderness. And Mark shows us this in contrast with the scribes who would have been the religious leaders. These are the people with the PhDs in religion who are there watching what Jesus is doing. And they're just sitting there. They're sitting there, we're told. And they're running Jesus through their theological frameworks, making judgments on everyone, Jesus included. Meanwhile, Jesus' concern is for people. And he sees deep into this paralyzed man's heart and saw that his chief need, his deepest and most important need, was to receive forgiveness. So a question for you is, how do you self-diagnose? When you pay attention to yourself and you ask the question, what's wrong with me? What do you come up with? I mean, all of us in our lives at some point are confronted with the reality that there is something wrong with us. Uh, American poet Benjamin Sayens writes, he said, I had the feeling that there was something wrong with me. I was a mystery even to myself. And I think often the way that we answer this question for ourselves, answer the question, what's wrong with me, is found in our if-onlys. Found in our if-onlys. If we, if we, we often think about ourselves and our needs like problems that can be solved if we have the right lever. Like if I can throw the right switch or I can get the right thing in order in my life, the right life hack, if I can figure that thing out, um, that persistent question of what's wrong with me will be answered. So how do you find yourself asking the if-onlys? For the paralyzed man and his friends, it was, if only he could walk, then everything would be okay. So how do you fill out that sentence? If only blank, then everything would be okay. Derek Jeter, the Hall of Fame, famer New York Yankee, once put his if only this way. He said, I think that there's something wrong with me. I like to win everything, regardless of what it is. You want to race down the street? I want to beat you. If we're playing checkers, I want to win. You beat me, it's going to bother me. There's something wrong with me, and the, the, this is what he's saying. There's something wrong with me, and my if only is answered in competition. If only I win, then everything can be okay. So what is it for you? What, what are the if onlys that play through your day, play through your mind, um, even today? I was thinking about this memory recently when I was in college. Um, I, ha- I have this distinct memory of trying to find like the perfect logo. I was so wrapped up in my image that I really thought if I could get a golf shirt that had the most awesome logo on it, everything would be okay. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I would spend hours on the internet looking for a perfect shirt. Um, If only I had it, I seriously thought, then everything would be okay. So what is it for you? What is the if only? If only I was thinner, if only I was stronger, if only I was funnier, or smarter, or more confident, or if only I was not as shy, or if only I didn't talk all the time, or if only I was in the in crowd, or if only I got a bid from that fraternity or that sorority, if only I had an attractive girlfriend, or if only I had a funny boyfriend, or if only I had one that was both funny and attractive. Um, You can't have it all, y'all. If only I got that MCAT, or that LSAT, or that GRE score. If only I got an A in accounting. I know that one's live right now. Um, If only I got the perfect life with a wonderful spouse, two and a half kids, a big house with lots of windows and great vacations, right? These, These are the if onlys we play through our minds. So what are we doing? When we play the if only game, what is it that we're doing? Well, the Bible says that our real problem 
is that every one of us is building an identity on something other than Jesus. When we play the if-only game, we're looking to that thing to save us, to save us from despair or from being mediocre or from becoming boring. We're turning that wish into our Savior. We never say that to ourselves, right? That's not the language we speak to ourselves with, but that's what we're doing. And the Bible calls this idolatry, that when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, it's idolatry. When we take a good thing like academic success or having good friendships and we make it an ultimate thing, saying, if only I have this, I must have this for me to be happy. And then when we don't get that thing, we feel angry or unhappy or empty. But if you do get that thing, you ultimately feel more empty and more unhappy. Um, Last night, Mary Clark and I started watching Cruella together. I say started watching. We're getting old where we watch like a little bit of a movie every night. That's the thing old people do. Um, So we're only halfway through the movie. But what I've learned so far, watching the Baroness, who's like the the bad lady, the bad guy in the movie. They're all bad guys, but she's the worst. Um, She has everything. She gets every if only answered. She's on top of the fashion world, and she is angry, empty, and unhappy. So what is going on with this? Why is it that when we focus on our if-onlys, if our aim is at our deepest wish, that we can't be happy? Like, what is going on here? One pastor puts it this way. He says, you've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it into your Savior, and now that you have it, it's turned on you. Jesus says, you see, if you have me, I will actually fulfill you. And if you fail me, I will forgive you always. I'm the only savior who can do that. But it's really hard for us to figure that out. I mean, many of us, we start going to RUF and start going to God because we have problems and we ask God to give us a little boost so that we can get through our problems, go back to saving ourselves, back to pursuing our deepest wish. But the problem is that we're looking to something beside Jesus to be our savior. Almost always, when we first go to Jesus with our if only, his response is that we need to go a lot deeper than that. And this is because our need is deeper than we think it is. Our need is deeper than we think it is. C.S. Lewis um, illustrates this reality for us in his book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, which is part of the Narnia series. And in that story, there's this boy named Eustace Scrub, which is an awful name, And everybody hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish, he's mean, nobody can get along with him. But then he finds himself magically on this boat, the Don Treader, on a great sea adventure. And at one point, the boat drops anchor on this island, and Eustace wanders off, and he finds a cave. And in that cave, he finds this storehouse of treasure. There's diamonds and rubies and gold, and his heart fills up, and he thinks, I'm rich. And immediately, because he is who he is, he thinks that he's going to be able to get revenge on everyone else. Anyone who has laughed at him or stepped on him or slighted him, they're now going to get what's coming to them. So Eustace then falls asleep on this pile of treasure, which he doesn't know is the horde of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with greedy dragon thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he becomes a dragon. Big terrible, ugly. And soon he realizes that there's no way out. He's stuck a dragon. He can't get back on the boat. He can't talk to his friends. He's going to be left alone on this island. He's going to be horrible his whole life, and he falls into despair. 
And then one day, the great lion Aslan shows up and leads Eustace the dragon to this clear pool of water and tells him to undress and to jump in. And suddenly, Eustace realizes that when he says undress, it means take off the dragon skin. So he begins to gnaw at and claw off the scales and realizes that he can actually shed his skin. So he works at it. He peels off this dragon skin, but he learns to his dismay that underneath he actually has another dragon skill. And so he, dragon skin. So he tries again and again, and the same thing happens each time. And in the end, Aslan the lion says to him, you're going to have to let me go deeper. Here's how Eustace tells the story later in the book. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It hurt worse than anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I turned into a boy again. So just like Eustace, just like the paralyzed man, we think that if we go just a little bit, if we got just a little bit of help, we could save ourselves. But Jesus wants to take us deeper. Friends, you have to let him use his lion claws and go all the way to your heart to reconfigure the things that your heart wants. So here's the thing, your if-onlys, our if-onlys, that's not the problem. Just like it wasn't the paralytic man's problem to want to walk again, or it wasn't wrong for Eustace to want to be loved and respected. See, our problem is that we think that getting our deepest wish will heal us. Our problem is that we think that if we get all of our if-onlys answered, then we'll be okay, then we'll be saved. Russell Brand, who's a British comedian, um, Katy Perry's ex-husband, for context. Um, he was famously, like 10, 15 years ago, famously addicted to drugs and alcohol. And he got sober about 10 years ago. And there's this great article that he, this interview he did in The Guardian, um, when he's asked about his addiction. And this is what he said. I think this is so remarkable. He said, I learned I didn't have a drug and alcohol problem. I had a reality problem. And drugs and alcohol were my solution. I had a reality problem and drugs and alcohol were my solution. See, here's what we do. We approach the things that we don't like about ourselves, the things that we don't like about our lives. We approach our addictions, whether they're to our phones or our obsessive need to get A's or our binge drinking or pornography use or disordered eating. Like we approach these things thinking that they're a problem that we're trying to fix. But in reality, they aren't our problems. They are our solutions. All of your if-onlys are your attempts at saving yourself. They are your self-salvation strategies. The good ones will get you celebrated. The bad ones that you don't want anyone to know about, all of these are the ways that you are trying to address your reality problem. Your if-onlys are your solutions. And what God is showing us here in Mark 2 is that Jesus alone can save you. See, when Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, he's doing something that is radically unexpected. So unexpected that it triggers his first clash with the religious authorities of his day. See, when Jesus forgives this man's sins, the teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this guy talk like this? 
He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Jesus can read the hearts and minds, the motives of those around him. And in this case, the religious leaders. And when he tells this this man that, son, your sins are forgiven, they're shocked and angry. They believe that Jesus is blaspheming, that he's showing irreverence or contempt towards God because he's claimed to do something that only God can do. But here's the thing. The leaders were correct theologically. It is true. Only God can forgive sins. But there was something faulty with their logic. They reasoned that since only God can forgive sins, and this man claims to forgive sins, then he must be blaspheming. Um, There was a student involved in RUF a few years ago who never paid his university parking tickets. And freshmen, you will soon learn this is a thing. Um, He got a boot on his car one semester. He owed hundreds, I have no idea how much money he owed. It's hundreds and hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars in parking tickets. But as you know, Wake will not let you graduate unless you pay your parking tickets. So, uh, sorry, bad news. Um, So let's say, this is just a a hypothetical. Let's say that this student went to the parking office the week before graduation, and I'm standing there in the parking office, and um, I say to him, hey, you, your parking ticket is, all your parking tickets are forgiven. You don't have to pay anything, and I take his ticket and I rip it up. How do you think the lady in the parking office would react? Uh, She'd probably laugh at me. She'd probably get upset because I tore up the ticket and she has to print another one. She'd think it's it's ridiculous. Why? Because I can't forgive his parking ticket. I'm not connected to the university in that way. I'm not the parking office. Only the parking office can forgive or whatever, forgive his parking ticket. That's whose rule he broke. That's who has the ability to forgive. This is why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, He's actually saying, your sins are really against me. I am the cosmic parking lady. (laughs) Only I can forgive your ticket. The only person who could possibly say your sins are forgiven to a human being would be their creator. Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God. And the religious leaders know it. That's why they're getting upset. Because he's not just claiming to be a miracle worker. He's claiming to be the king of the universe. Jesus was a theological crisis for these leaders. And Jesus responds to their thoughts by saying, well, which is easier? To say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, and he turns to the paralytic and says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And this is a great question he asks, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And this, um, this question has actually puzzled Christians for 2,000 years. For, from our perspective, it seems that it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one could test that one out, right? No one can see whether or not sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove or disprove the, the truth of what Jesus pronounced. But saying take, take your mat or get up, take your mat and walk would actually put Jesus on the spot. The people would know whether or not he could actually do this, whether or not he had the power to heal the man. But I don't think Jesus thought it was easier to say your sins are forgiven. In that culture, in the presence of his enemies, it would have been far easier for Jesus to say, get up and walk. Why? Because Jesus knew that when he said your sins are forgiven, he was throwing down the gauntlet. 
because he was claiming to be divine. By revealing that he had the remedy to our deepest need, he woke up his enemies. And the remedy is far more costly than you can imagine. Because any miracle worker could say, take up your mat and walk, but only the savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. And it's here in chapter two of Mark's gospel that we see the shadow of the cross begin to fall across Jesus's path. I want you to re-enter the scene with me for a moment. Imagine you're there. There's a man, there's Jesus standing and teaching, and there's a man laying on a mat at his feet. He can't walk. There's a hole in the roof. The man's four friends are probably peering in over the edge. They're sitting on the floor. There's probably about 40 people, so a smaller group than this, but packed in a much, much smaller room. Everyone is watching and listening. And up front, there's a group of religious leaders with the beginnings of a murderous rage in their hearts. And Jesus has a choice. If he just heals the man, then he can be dismissed as a miracle worker and will not be bothered by these religious leaders. But if he not only heals them, but forgives his sins as well, he is taking this decisive, irreversible step towards his own death. Because he is saying clearly with his words and his action that he is God and that God forgives sinners. And it's as Jesus reveals his true identity that the forces of darkness are alerted to his power and begin to mount up to destroy him. By healing this man's sins, he is putting a down payment on the cross. Here's the thing. Jesus had the authority, had the power to heal this man's body, just like he has the power to answer all of our if-onlys. He actually has the power and the authority to give each of us what we've been asking for immediately with no questions asked. But Jesus knows that that's not nearly deep enough. He knows that whether we're a paralyzed man on a mat or a famous comedian or an evil fashion designer or a college student, we don't just need someone who can grant our wishes. We need someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws lovingly and carefully to pierce through our self-centeredness and remove the sin that enslaves and distorts our longings. In short, we need forgiveness. That's the only way that our if-onlys are to be healed. We don't need a miracle worker or some kind of holy genie in a bottle. We need a savior. And Jesus knows that in order to be our savior, he was going to have to die. Everyone knew in that house, the house where Jesus was teaching, everyone in that house knew that for God to forgive your sins, something had to die in your place. Forgiveness requires blood, the lifeblood of one creature for the other. So when Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins for the paralyzed man, he stepped under the shadow of the cross because forgiveness flows from Jesus, crucified for us. Friends, your if-onlys, they're not bad. They're just distorted. And when you bring them to Jesus, he won't dismiss you. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at how he loved this paralyzed man. This man crippled with shame and despair, Jesus looked at him lovingly, the heart full of compassion, and saw deep down beneath and gently said to him, son, child, beloved, your sins are forgiven. And they were washed whiter than snow at the cost of his life. Friends, this is an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you 
for Jesus and that he is not satisfied with our if onlys, but wants to do the deeper work of getting down deep beneath them to forgive our sin. Lord, I pray for my friends tonight as they listen in um, and struggle through this. And Lord, I pray that you would help them, help them to make sense of their own lives in light of your life and death for them. We thank you that you love us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.